Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Welcome one and all, old and young, Democrat and moderate Democrat, to the largest week of cases yet on the podcast. 11 fascinating decisions. Brought to you in no small part by two Supreme Court, two Seventh Circuit, and three Ninth Circuit decisions. To quote Rainer Wolfcastle, laughing time is over. Let's go. First up is Garland v. Gonzalez, published by the Supreme Court on June 13, 2022. This case is about class action injunctions. It's a big deal. Justice Alito authored a majority decision in which Justices Sotomayor, Breyer, and Kagan concurred and dissented in part. In this case, the majority held, after itself requesting that the issue be briefed, that INA Section 242F1 deprives district courts of jurisdiction to issue class-wide injunctive relief in immigration cases. It's a pretty massive ruling, and if this had been the law during the prior administration, it may have left an immigration landscape quite different from the one we currently have. The non-citizens in this case represent a class of non-citizens who were physically removed, re-entered the U.S. unlawfully, and had their prior final orders of removal reinstated. They sought withholding of removal and passed their reasonable fear interviews, thereby placing them in withholding-only proceedings before an immigration judge to see if they could establish that, yes, indeed, if they are returned to their home countries, they will more likely than not be persecuted or tortured. ICE decided to detain all of them under INA Section 241A6, not based on a finding that they were dangerous or flight risks, but rather based simply on the nature of their arrival into the U.S. and the way that we as a country view them under immigration law. All of the individual class members were refused bond hearings before an immigration judge due to the fact that they had prior removal orders that had been reinstated. And so, after remaining detained for over six months, and with their withholding-only proceedings still pending, 
a whole bunch of them got together, formed a class, and sued in federal court in an effort to simply obtain bond hearings to determine whether, in fact, they were dangerous or flight risks, such that they must remain detained at a rate of $120 a day per individual. The district court certified the class and issued an injunction, and the Ninth Circuit affirmed, requiring, essentially, that each individual class member receive a bond hearing. But the Supreme Court held that the district court wasn't allowed to do that. According to the Supreme Court, INA Section 242-F1 is clear. Except on a case-by-case basis, no court can, quote, enjoin or restrain the operations, end quote, of the Immigration and Nationality Act. Except, of course, the Supreme Court. Or as the Supreme Court majority put it, Section 242F1, quote, generally prohibits lower courts from entering injunctions that order federal officials to take or to refrain from taking actions to enforce, implement, or otherwise carry out the specified statutory provisions, end quote. But, and importantly, the statute does not, in Justice Alito's words, quote, preclude a court from entering injunctive relief on behalf of a particular alien, but injunctive relief on behalf of an entire class of aliens is not allowed, end quote. So in essence, individual plaintiffs could theoretically receive federal court orders requiring IJs to provide bond hearings here, but a whole class of non-citizens can't. Of course, individual federal court actions is prohibitively expensive for most non-citizens, and everybody knows it. But also theoretically, if a circuit court were to then affirm the requirement in a published decision that individuals in withholding-only proceedings must receive bond hearings after six months, that would be the law of the circuit, regardless of whether the initial case was brought class-wide. In theory. Just wait till you hear the next Supreme Court decision. By definition, the majority of the Supreme Court rejected the counter-arguments here, and all of that gets deep into the dictionary definition of words and statutory interpretation. But to summarize, the majority did not believe, as the dissent did, that the INA's injunction bar is inapplicable to, quote, unlawful agency action, end quote. The dissent believes that federal courts still have jurisdiction to bar immigration agencies class-wide when the agency acts unlawfully. The majority doesn't believe that federal courts have that authority. Now, the majority certainly believes that plaintiffs can enjoin federal agency unlawful actions in other contexts, maybe all other contexts, but just not with immigration. And to be fair, other agency actions besides immigration are not subject to INA Section 242-F1. Justice Sotomayor, writing for the three concurrence dissent minority, believes that the majority, quote, reaches this conclusion in a purportedly textualist opinion that, in truth, elevates piecemeal dictionary definitions and policy concerns over plain meaning and context. I respectfully dissent from the Court's blinkered analysis, which will leave many vulnerable non-citizens unable to protect their rights. End quote. So what now? Three days before this decision came out, Judge Tipton in the Northern District of Texas pretty much enjoined the entire prosecutorial discretion enforcement policy of the Biden administration. Does this decision now invalidate Judge Tipton's order? Well, probably not, because those decisions couldn't have been brought by class actions, as no non-citizens would have been challenging the Biden administration's PD policy. I believe that it is states that are bringing that action. And because of that, I guess the class-wide ban on district court injunctions wouldn't apply. 
Also, I'm pretty sure that the Biden administration made this very argument later in the week and that it was rejected. I may be getting my red state immigration challenges mixed up. But it just goes to show that there are other ways to obtain nationwide immigration injunctive relief without traveling under a class action. Which may be good in the future because immigration class actions now appear to be barred. And that is Garland V. Gonzalez. Sticking with the Supreme Court, not something we often say on the podcast. Johnson v. Arteaga Martinez, published on June 13, 2022. This case is about immigration detention. Justice Sotomayor issued the opinion for the court with Justices Thomas and Gorsuch concurring and Justice Breyer concurring and dissenting in part. This is the companion case of Garland v. Gonzalez, and it kind of gets to the heart of what Gonzalez was all about before it got subsumed by that whole class-wide injunction issue. Does the immigration statute require immigration courts and or DHS to provide non-citizens in withholding-only proceedings and detained under INA Section 241A6, quote, Bond hearings after six months of detention, in which the government bears the burden of proving by clear and convincing evidence that a non-citizen poses a flight risk or a danger to the community. It does not, end quote. Relevant here. Mr. Arteaga Martinez was ordered removed from the U.S. and was removed, but upon removal was, quote, beaten violently by members of a criminal street gang, end quote. He re-entered the U.S. unlawfully, ICE reinstated his prior removal order, Mr. Arteaga Martinez passed his reasonable fear interview, and ICE detained him during his withholding-only proceedings. He remained detained despite having, quote, no criminal record, end quote, and the fact that he was, quote, expecting the birth of his first child, end quote. Also, quote, the government does not dispute that ICE conducted an administrative review of his dangerousness and flight risk in August 2018 and denied him release without interviewing him or providing him a hearing, end quote. Desperate to get someone to pay attention to his bond eligibility, Mr. Arteaga Martinez sued in federal court asking simply for an immigration judge to adjudicate his bond eligibility pending his withholding-only proceedings. The district court granted Mr. Arteaga Martinez's petition for writ of habeas corpus, finding that under the immigration statute and due to his prolonged detention, an IJ must provide him a bond hearing or ICE bore the burden. The Third Circuit affirmed. Mr. Arteaga Martinez got his hearing, ICE could not meet its burden, and he was released. He has not since absconded, he has not committed any crime, and taxpayers have not been paying $120 a day to detain him and he is still waiting for a final decision in his withholding-only case over three years after his release, time he would have otherwise spent in detention. But in this case, the Supreme Court held that the District Court and the Third Circuit were wrong on the law. The statute doesn't provide Mr. Arteaga Martinez a right to a bond hearing, or at least a bond hearing of this type, where the government bears the burden. To summarize, ICE has 90 days to remove someone with a final order of removal post-removal order. Individuals like Mr. Arteaga Martinez, in withholding-only proceedings, technically have final orders of removal. They're just asking that it be withheld. The Supreme Court has made that very clear in decisions over the last couple of terms. So what happens if the non-citizen hasn't been removed within 90 days? 
Well, in the 2001 decision Zadvides v. Davis, the court held for reasons of constitutional avoidance that the very statute at issue in this case, quote, does not permit indefinite detention, end quote. And Justice Kennedy remarked in his necessary concurrence that such detention may become unreasonable after six months. But four years ago in Jennings v. Rodriguez, the court held that a different detention statute didn't require bond hearings after six months, with ICE bearing the burden. The Supreme Court punted on whether the Constitution requires such bond hearings, but it held that a similar statute didn't in Jennings. And so now, as in Jennings, the court believed the statute clear, meaning that, unlike in Zadvidis, quote, the canon of constitutional avoidance simply has no application. End quote. Put another way, either the statute is unconstitutional or it's not, but courts aren't allowed to interpret a statute in a manner that avoids the unconstitutionality if the statute is clear. It needs to either apply the statute or find the statute unconstitutional. According to the court, INA section 241A6 is clear. There is nothing in that, quote, that requires the government to provide bond hearings before immigration judges after six months of detention with the government bearing the burden, end quote. Therefore, end quote, faithfully applying our precedent, end quote, in Jennings. Despite Justice Sotomayor not agreeing with that precedent and dissenting in Jennings, the Jennings analysis controls, and Justice Sotomayor is going to follow Jennings. Perhaps Justice Sotomayor has Dobbs and Roe on her mind and is reminding her colleagues. Perhaps not. Again and naturally, the majority rejected the counterarguments. For instance, the Department of Justice's own regulations appear to provide such authority for bond hearings, but that says little as to what the statute requires. Quote, the parties do not dispute that the government possesses discretion to provide bond hearings. But this court cannot say, consistent with Jennings, that the statutory text requires them. End quote. DOJ could do it, and they could implement a regulation to provide bond hearings for people like Mr. Arteaga Martinez, but DOJ has chosen not to do so. As in Jennings, none of this precludes arguments in district court that the U.S. Constitution, rather than the statute itself, requires a bond hearing for such individuals. Personally, I'm not optimistic about what the Supreme Court will eventually say on that, but the argument is alive and well, ready to be made once detention of any sort becomes prolonged, all over the country, until the Supreme Court speaks again. In fact, that very issue was presented before the Supreme Court here, but because that wasn't the rationale relied upon by the Third Circuit below, the Supreme Court left the dispute for another day and another term. Too much going on this term anyway. My heart can take no more. Justice Thomas concurred to state three scary things. One, he doesn't think the Supreme Court even has jurisdiction to hear this case. Two, he doesn't think that the Due Process Clause of the Constitution applies to the laws governing removal of non-citizens. And three, he believes that the Supreme Court, quote, should overrule Zadvidus at the earliest opportunity, end quote. He only had himself as the vote for those latter two things. And before we leave the Supreme Court... Some good news for non-citizen advocates out of the Supreme Court as well this week. In a different case, the Supreme Court appears to have conclusively killed the public charge rule. Recall the Trump administration promulgated a new regulation on just what it means to be a public charge for immigration purposes, which was challenged by states, I believe, and it wasn't joined. 
When the Biden administration came in, it declined to defend that proposed regulation from the Trump administration, whereby 13 Republican-controlled states tried to intervene to defend the regulation themselves. The Supreme Court granted certiorari but has now dismissed the whole case as, quote, improvidently granted, end quote. Justices Roberts, Thomas, Gorsuch, and Alito don't seem thrilled about it. But, describing the whole procedural posture as a, quote, mayor's nest that could stand in the way of our reaching the question presented, end quote, the court has ended the dispute. So it appears that the proposed public charge chaos is dead. Long live the chaos. And that is Johnson v. Artiega Martinez, plus the public charge Supreme Court case. All right. Next is Aguiar Zunega v. Garland, published by the Seventh Circuit on June 16th, 2022. You know I was coming to this one next. Here I believe we have the first immigration decision authored by recent Seventh Circuit judge and Supreme Court shortlist nominee, Judge Jackson Akiwumi. And it's a big, big one on controlled substances. Mr. Aguiar Zunega has lived in the U.S. since he was brought here at three years old. He's now a father himself, and he has a six-year-old U.S. citizen daughter. He's been a lawful permanent resident for over a decade, and he speaks English better than he does Spanish. He's visited Mexico three times in his life. He should have naturalized, but he didn't, and so when he was convicted in November 2018 of one count of dealing in methamphetamine under Indiana Code Section 35-48-4-1.1, he had big problems. DHS sought his removal, charging the conviction as a controlled substance trafficking aggravated felony. Mr. Aguirre-Zunega's attorneys, however, presented the argument that we're always talking about with cocaine, and that has been recently accepted by courts as regards marijuana. That Indiana's definition of meth is broader than the federal definition of meth, meaning that the statute is broader than the removable offense, meaning that Mr. Aguirre-Zunega isn't removable unless Indiana's definition of meth is itself divisible. Specifically, Ms. Aguirre-Zunega argued that Indiana, quote, criminalized optical, positional, and geometric isomers of methamphetamine, while the corresponding federal offense criminalized only optical isomers, end quote. I know, lots going on there. The IJ and then the BIA rejected the argument, applying the categorical approach in a manner only applied in the Fifth Circuit to hold that to win on such an argument, Mr. Aguiar-Zunega needs to satisfy the realistic probability test first and to actually find a case where Indiana was punishing dealing of meth in the way with isomers that the federal government doesn't, i.e. the BIA was applying matter of Guadarrama. But in my research, that is not the correct framework in any circuit beyond the Fifth. And here, the Seventh Circuit vacated the BIA's decision. In fact, even oil appears not to agree with the BIA's approach, as it conceded before the Seventh Circuit that if the statutory text is overbroad, here the definition of methamphetamine, a statute is clearly overbroad, and the realistic probability test has no role to play. How about that? To the extent that any doubt remained in the Seventh Circuit, the court was clear, quote, if the statute is overbroad on its face under the categorical approach, the inquiry ends, end quote. 
That's important stuff because remember, controlled substance removability depends, first and foremost, on whether the Federal Controlled Substance Act criminalizes possession, selling, etc. of the same type of drugs as the state. If, for example, the state criminalizes selling cot, but the federal government doesn't, the statute is overbroad, and the statute very well might not make a non-citizen removable or bar them from relief. The big fight recently has been about what happens when a drug is internally overbroad. That is, Indiana's definition of meth, or Florida's definition of marijuana, where those definitions appear broader than the federal definitions of those same substances. Here, Indiana criminalizes the other isomers. In Florida, the state criminalizes the seeds and stems of marijuana, while the federal government doesn't. That type of stuff. What happens? Well, here, the Seventh Circuit joined the logic of recent Eighth Circuit and Eleventh Circuit rulings on marijuana. But it's really big here because, to my knowledge, this is the first court in modern times adopting the logic for isomers, which is a chemical that applies to meth, cocaine, and who knows what else. If a state criminalizes possession, use, or distribution of more isomers of meth than the federal government does, the statute is overbroad and likely doesn't make the non-citizen removable or bar them from relief. Realistic probability test be damned. Quote, Under federal law, isomers of methamphetamine only refers to the optical isomer. End quote. But under Indiana law at the time of Mr. Aguiar-Zunega's conviction, Indiana did not specifically define the term isomer. While it gets pretty complicated, essentially, quote, because the Indiana legislature chose to limit the types of isomers defining other drugs, but did not do so with methamphetamine, we must read the schedules to define methamphetamine as including at least optical and positional isomers, end quote. It's complicated logic, so read the decision, because actually that logic can apply to other categorical approach arguments as well. Kind of an argument based on legislative silence. Important here is that Indiana criminalized possession and distribution of more isomers than the feds do. The feds don't include positional isomers with methamphetamine. I will concede that I don't know what that is, but it doesn't matter. It's something that the feds don't criminalize. We know that positional isomers are different from optical isomers, because in 2020, Indiana amended its law to define isomer as only optical isomer. So now it would appear that the Indiana definition is not overbroad vis-a-vis the federal definition of methamphetamine. But Mr. Aguirre-Zunega's conviction occurred pre-2020, and Indiana changed it, meaning that they probably thought it was overbroad before. Mr. Aguirre-Zunega wins. Most importantly, a circuit court has now agreed with the isomer argument. I command ye floodgates to openeth. And that is Aguiar Zuniga v. Garland. Next up is Cabrera Ruiz v. Garland, published by the Seventh Circuit on June 14, 2022. This case is about credibility and the Convention Against Torture. The Seventh Circuit is not pleased with Mr. Cabrera Ruiz, beginning its decision by noting his repeat criminal history and unlawful entries into the United States. After a recent illegal reentry conviction, he ended up in removal proceedings and applied for deferral of his removal under the CAT to Mexico. The IJBIA, and now Seventh Circuit, denied. See, as it turns out, 
Mr. Cabrera Ruiz has been trafficking cocaine for powerful criminals who he believes are linked to La Familia Michoacana drug cartel in Mexico. And he himself has a history of gang involvement in Mexico. He's got the tattoos, the convictions, the whole deal. He also used to traffic contraband for the cartel de Jalisco Nueva Generacion in Mexico, and he claims that the cartel shot his uncle, murdered his nephew, and threatened to kill his brother when it believed that Mr. Cabrera Ruiz lost 3 million pesos worth of computers. Later in his removal proceedings, Mr. Cabrera Ruiz testified that he turned himself into the cartel in Mexico, and that he was tortured for 27 days whereby he was then released with the instruction to murder a rival in Mexico City. Mr. Cabrera Ruiz testified that he instead fled to the U.S. He testified in immigration court that he feared both of his former cartel employers. He believes that he'll be killed as a snitch and that the Mexican police will not protect him. He brought evidence direct, circumstantial, and expert. However, quote, in a detailed opinion, the IJ explained that although credible claims of past torture would ordinarily earn cat relief, Mr. Cabrera Ruiz was not credible, end quote. Then, considering the record evidence, the IJ concluded that Mr. Cabrera Ruiz hadn't met his cat burden without his testimony. Quote, the risk of future harm for being a snitch was too speculative, and the gang tattoos were a non-factor because Mr. Cabrera Ruiz had previously lived in Mexico with those very same tattoos. End quote. Like I said, the BIA and now the Seventh Circuit upheld the adverse credibility finding. Importantly to all tribunals involved, Mr. Cabrera Ruiz didn't tell ICE about any of his fears when he was asked in detail in 2009 during an incident with immigration officials. Not only that, but Mr. Cabrera Ruiz didn't mention important details during his DHS interview in 2020, including the 27-day torture. Quote, to accept Mr. Cabrera Ruiz's explanation to the IJ for these inconsistencies, that the ICE agent never asked about torture generally, would require a fact finder to suspend disbelief. One does not forget such a traumatizing experience, end quote. Mr. Cabrera Ruiz also appears to have been less than forthcoming on some of the details of his drug trafficking. All that isn't technically fatal to cat protection. It can be earned if the record establishes eligibility, even without the testimony. And here, Mr. Cabrera Ruiz had much more, including an expert opining directly on point. But Mr. Cabrera Ruiz's witnesses and his expert were insufficient to the Seventh Circuit, at least, quote, under the highly deferential substantial evidence standard, end quote. Addressing the expert testimony, for example, quote, general evidence of government acquiescence to cartel activity does not alone support a finding that a public official will turn a blind eye if the cartel attempts to torture Mr. Cabrera Ruiz, end quote. Mr. Cabrera Ruiz will therefore be returned to Mexico. And that is Cabrera Ruiz v. Garland. Next up is Reyes Pujols v. Garland, published by the First Circuit on June 14, 2022. This decision is about credibility. Mr. Reyes is from the Dominican Republic and was placed in removal proceedings in Boston shortly after his entry into the U.S. without authorization. At his asylum hearing in immigration court, he testified that he worked as a chauffeur for a wealthy man in the Dominican Republic named Joel de la Cruz. 
and that Mr. De La Cruz essentially orchestrated a ploy to make it look like Mr. Reyes stole 600,000 pesos from him, even though he didn't. Mr. De La Cruz got police to arrest and detain Mr. Pujols, and then they stabbed him in the legs multiple times with a screwdriver. They released Mr. Reyes, and then those same officers came to his neighborhood and shot him. After his release from the hospital, they detained him again, and they stabbed him with the screwdriver in the leg again. He has medical records to prove it, it seems. But the IG made an adverse credibility finding and denied everything. For some reason, Mr. Reyes appealed only the denial of cat protection, which the BIA affirmed. So we've got a cat adverse credibility decision before the First Circuit, not so unlike the Seventh Circuit decision that we just discussed. But in this case, the First Circuit overturned the BIA and remanded. First, the IJ's finding that Mr. Reyes's demeanor evinced adverse credibility because he testified robotically and without emotion. Demeanor findings are hard to overturn. After all, only the IJ sees the testimony. The circuit just reads a cold record. Mr. Reyes argued that he suffered from PTSD and that the IJ's demeanor finding was premised on a, quote, unconscious bias against trauma survivors, end quote. Quite the argument. And maybe so, maybe not. But it seems that the BIA wasn't too keen on this IJ finding because it avoided affirming on that basis. And so the First Circuit didn't touch it either, turning to the only thing that the BIA did affirm. The IJ and the BIA believed that it was inconsistent that Mr. Reyes, quote, received a loan for an amount of money that would have been enough to satisfy Mr. Reyes's 600,000 peso debt and prevent further violence, end quote. See, Mr. Reyes got a loan that enabled him to come to the United States, and the IJ and the BIA apparently expected Mr. Reyes to repay the money that he did not steal after being stabbed and shot in lieu of using that money to flee the Dominican Republic. Even if that's appropriate logic, the First Circuit wasn't going to affirm it because the record didn't actually show what the BIA and the IJ thought it did. Mr. Reyes testified to having received a loan to flee the Dominican Republic less than the amount that he owed for a crime that he didn't commit. Not only that, what the IJ and the BIA were really saying is that Mr. Reyes needed to satisfy one debt with another. Quote, the amount that one owes as a debt, obviously, is not an amount that one therefore has. End quote. And actually, to be clear in a footnote, the First Circuit states that, quote, it is not in any way implausible that someone who reports having been shot, stabbed, and threatened with death over an unpaid debt would use what money he had to flee those attackers rather than to repay them. End quote. Because the IJ and the BIA made the adverse credibility finding by relying on all inconsistencies, quote, taken in the aggregate, end quote, and now this one inconsistency has fallen, the whole adverse credibility finding must be remanded to the BIA and perhaps the IJ. This is a logic similar to that employed by the Ninth Circuit in its post-Divey Garland precedent. Case remanded. Congrats, counsel and Mr. Reyes. And that is Reyes Pujols v. Garland. Next up is Matter of DLS, published by the BIA. This case is about convictions and particularly serious crimes. 
It comes to the BIA here following Oil's request for a remand from the 11th Circuit. Mr. DLS is from Mexico, entered the United States unlawfully many years ago, and in 1999, pled nolo contendere to felony battery under Section 784.041 of the Florida Statutes. He received five years probation, and adjudication was deferred, which was later modified to include anger management evaluations. He was placed in removal proceedings and applied for withholding of removal under the INA and the Convention Against Torture. After all, he was removable, and any asylum application was probably many years untimely. The IJ denied the withholding of removal application by finding that the assault thing was a, quote, final judgment, end quote, under the INA, and that moreover it was a particularly serious crime under INA Section 241b3a, a statute that describes a class of crimes so serious that only aggravated felonies with five years imprisonment served per se qualify. But matter of NAM also allows other crimes to qualify on a case-by-case basis, and here, the immigration judge made that conclusion. Having so held, the IJ denied the last remaining form of protection, cat deferral, on the merits. The BIA affirmed the IJ, and now on remand, has done so again. INA Section 241b3bii bars withholding of removal if the non-citizen has been, quote, convicted by a final judgment of a particularly serious crime, he is a danger to the community of the United States, end quote. Just a bit of recent background before we get started, Attorney General Garland just said last month in matter of BZR that this latter phrase of the statute is not redundant, the particularly serious crime analysis is governed by the overarching concern of whether the crime indicates that the non-citizen is a danger, and not simply the elements of the offense. Now, Since 1988, the BIA has deemed a non-citizen, quote, convicted for immigration purposes if a court either adjudicated the person guilty and entered a formal judgment, or entered a deferred adjudication of guilt, end quote. The latter phrase required a bunch more things of the state criminal judgment. But Congress took out all of those additional things in 1997 at INA Section 101-848-A to make it easier to deport people. Following that change, the BIA has believed that Congress wants an immigration conviction to be satisfied, at a minimum, quote, based on an initial finding or admission of guilt, coupled with the imposition of some punishment, even in a state where further proceedings relating to the non-citizen's actual guilt or innocence may be required upon his violation of probation in order for him to be considered convicted under the state law, end quote. It's an expansive and confusing definition of conviction which makes little sense under criminal law, but this is, of course, immigration law. Okay, but the particularly serious crime bar uses the term conviction of a final judgment. So what does final judgment mean, combined with that confusing definition of conviction? Well, apparently the Supreme Court held in 1937 that, quote, final judgment in a criminal case means sentence. The sentence is the judgment, end quote and that the judgment remains final even if execution of the judgment was suspended. The BIA believes Congress knew about this when it wrote the phrase final judgment into the particularly serious crime bar, and so, the BIA held that for immigration purposes, the term final judgment attaches, quote, once a sentence is imposed, even if the sentence is later withheld, deferred, or suspended, end quote. 
So even if a state or a state court judge didn't want a non-citizen to suffer the consequences of their criminal act and deferred adjudication of the sentence, immigration law does not care, including even in cases where an individual is more likely than not going to suffer persecution or torture if removed. Stated in immigration statutory terms, it appears that a state-deferred adjudication that satisfies INA Section 101A48 is also going to satisfy the particularly serious crime bar if the deferred adjudication is sufficiently serious. How does all that apply to Mr. DLS? Well, at the time of his offense in Florida, where adjudication of guilt was deferred and probation was ordered, as happened here, a defendant must have been found guilty or at least entered a plea of guilty or nullo contendere. Apparently that might not be the case after 2004, so maybe this decision is not applicable to post-2004 deferred adjudications in Florida. The BIA certainly casts some doubt in a footnote. But that wasn't the case here. Mr. DLS's deferred adjudication is pre-2004. The BIA held that Mr. DLS's deferred adjudication plus probation satisfies the definition of a conviction at INA Section 101A48, meaning that it satisfied the final judgment stuff that we just discussed as relates to particularly serious crimes. Fair enough, but that then leaves one more question. Is this final judgment particularly serious, as the withholding bar requires? It is. At least here. Again, in a footnote, the BIA says that this very statute might not always be a particularly serious crime, but it is in this case under the facts. It's a three-part analysis under matter of NAM, and to even potentially apply, the first part is the most important. But the BIA found that first element met here. Quote, because this statute defines a crime against persons involving an intentional act that causes great bodily harm, permanent disability, or permanent disfigurement, its elements potentially bring the offense within the ambit of a particularly serious crime. End quote. Crimes against persons are the historic particularly serious crimes. Everything else is much murkier. Because this crime is within the ambit of particularly serious crimes, the BIA is permitted to review the actual facts and circumstances of the offense, the second and third parts of the matter of NAM analysis. And here, it looks like Mr. DLS hit someone in a gas station in the chest with a piece of glass after that person threatened him with an empty beer bottle. Mr. DLS claimed self-defense, but the IJ didn't believe him, and the BIA affirmed that disbelief. Because of the injury to the victim, the sentence imposed, and the IJ's rejection of the self-defense claim, the BIA agreed that the facts of this case made the crime particularly serious. Therefore, even if Mr. DLS will be killed in Mexico by non-state actors who the Mexican government is unable or unwilling to control, he cannot obtain relief in the United States. And that is a matter of DLS. Next is Holmes v. Garland, published by the 8th Circuit on June 17th, 2022. This case is about due process. Ms. Holmes is from Kenya and entered on a student visa in 2009. It appears, however, that she may have stopped going to school and then claimed to be a U.S. citizen on an I-9 to get a job. DHS placed her in removal proceedings. At the first hearing, the IJ seemed to be quite clearly offering Ms. Holmes the opportunity to get a continuance and obtain an attorney, but Ms. Holmes insisted on being heard that day, pro se. She was, after all, in immigration prison at the time. 
Representing herself, Ms. Holmes testified that she was raped in Kenya and wanted to apply for asylum for that reason. The IJ continued proceedings. At the next hearing, the IJ granted bond and continued the case again. Then at the next hearing with an attorney, Ms. Holmes's attorney told the new IJ that she wouldn't be seeking asylum and that she wished to revoke her prior admissions and concessions to the facts and allegations in the notice to appear. Also, Ms. Holmes had recently married a U.S. citizen and an I-130 petition was pending. Naturally, Ms. Holmes's attorney wanted to withdraw the admission and concession because Ms. Holmes, pro se, admitted to DHS's allegation that she had made a false claim to U.S. citizenship, which would preclude her from adjusting to LPR status even if that I-130 was eventually approved. The IJ denied everything, and as no asylum application appears to have been pending, granted Ms. Holmes's alternative request for voluntary departure. On appeal to the BIA, Ms. Holmes's case was actually administratively closed and then reopened because admin closure policy got crazy there for a few years. Six years later, Ms. Holmes moved for a remand to apply for asylum. The BIA denied, and the Eighth Circuit upheld the BIA. Before the Eighth Circuit and BIA, really, Ms. Holmes argued that the first immigration judge violated her due process rights. And to quote, IJ must be particularly careful when dealing with pro se non-citizens like Ms. Holmes, end quote. But to succeed on such a claim, Ms. Holmes must show that the IJ, quote, made a fundamental procedural error and that prejudice resulted from that error, end quote. Here, at a minimum, Ms. Holmes could not show the first. The IJ did all the things that IJs are supposed to do, and, quote, twice asked Ms. Holmes if she wanted to continue the proceedings against her, once specifically so that Ms. Holmes could obtain counsel, which Ms. Holmes declined, end quote. The IJ provided a list of pro bono counsel and went through the allegations in the NTA. Nor did the BIA err in denying Ms. Holmes' alternative motion to remand. As filed, it was really a motion to reopen, it appears and such motions require submission of a new application for relief, along with evidence that is material and was not available or discoverable at the time of the prior hearing. Apparently, Ms. Holmes did not fully comply with those requirements in her motion with the BIA, and so the Eighth Circuit affirmed the BIA. And that is Holmes v. Garland. All right. Next is Donnelly v. Carp, published by the Second Circuit on June 14th, 2022. It's an exceptionally large week of cases this week, but before we get to the final trio of Ninth Circuit cases, I wanted to talk about this decision real quick because it's quite interesting. This is a naturalization case. Mr. Donnelly is from Ireland and has been trying to naturalize for years. USCIS keeps denying him, and after a lot of back and forth and federal court, delayed his naturalization application for a while before denying it again. It appears that Mr. Donnelly believed that USCIS delayed his naturalization application by applying the secretive FBI-created Controlled Application Review and Resolution Program, or CARP. Under that secret program that is not a fish, and that only came to light because of an ACLU lawsuit, USCIS is essentially supposed to delay deciding cases where it suspects but cannot prove that an applicant did bad things, usually terrorism. Then, so the accusations go, USCIS usually denies the application when challenged by somebody. 
It appears that Mr. Donnelly believed that USAIS applied the CARP to delay his case, and that doing so was illegal. I believe that he believed that, because it appears that he may have arrests in Ireland from the 1970s involving accusations of terrorism. And I can only imagine that those are related to the infamous Troubles, if those arrests did occur. All of that is interesting enough. But this case is more interesting because after USCIS denied Mr. Donnelly's N-400 naturalization application, he filed an N-336 appeal, as the statute requires, but he didn't show up for his N-336 appeal interview. So USCIS upheld the denial, and Mr. Donnelly asked for a federal district court judge to review his naturalization eligibility de novo, as the law allows. And here's where it gets interesting, if jurisdiction rather than potential Irish terrorism arrests are your fancy. The district court judge dismissed the case for lack of jurisdiction. The judge believed that INA Section 310C requires the applicant to go through the entire N336 appeal process, and that if they don't, federal courts lack jurisdiction to decide the applicant's naturalization eligibility. But not so, said the Second Circuit. Yes, you've got to appeal the N-400 denial, and yes, you've got to show up for your N-336 interview, but failure to do so doesn't deprive federal district courts of jurisdiction later. Rather, INA Section 310C expresses a, quote, non-jurisdictional mandatory claims processing rule, end quote. It truly is the year of the claims processing rule. The most bland of all years. True. Mr. Donnelly did fail to exhaust the required mandatory administrative remedies, so don't miss your N336 hearing. But if you do, it's not jurisdictional. Mr. Donnelly's failure to attend the hearing tanked his case here, but maybe not in the future? There are sometimes exceptions to exhaustion, at least in some contexts. But there are never exceptions to jurisdiction. None that I'm aware of anyway. Hope you all love my lawyer-esque qualifying language. And check out this quote for all you deficient NTA litigators. Quote, Mandatory claims processing rules are mandatory. Because he did not comply and the government has not waived its requirements, Mr. Donnelly cannot state a claim. End quote. Now let's think about that in reverse. Personally, I've never waived ICE's NTA-related mandatory claims processing rule requirements. Have you? Indeed, quote, The Supreme Court has repeatedly said that if a party properly raises a mandatory claims processing rule, the rule is unalterable, end quote. Ooh-wee. That's Manrique v. United States and Erbhardt v. United States, by the way, both Supreme Court cases. I hope everyone at the AILA National Conference in the Second Circuit's backyard in New York City are listening. Anyway, don't miss your N336 interview, and don't fail to disclose arrests in Ireland. But it's not jurisdictional. And how about those claims processing rule apples? All right, that took a bit longer than anticipated. And that is Donnelly v. Carp. To the Ninth Circuit we go, first with Molina v. Garland, published on June 13th, 2022. This is a very non-citizen-friendly case on past persecution. Judge Piaz authored the decision, concurred with by District Court Judge Edward Corman, with Judge Van Dyke in dissent. Mr. Molina is from Nicaragua. To learn why Mr. Molina qualifies for asylum, it's important to know what's going on in Nicaragua at the moment. So here you go. Quote, 
the Sandinista National Liberation Front, or FSLN, regained control of the Nicaraguan government in 2007 under Daniel Ortega. The FSLN maintains power in part through Citizen Power Councils, CPCs, which are party-based grassroots organizations that operate in neighborhoods and districts across Nicaragua. The CPCs function as intelligence-gathering entities for the Nicaraguan government. They also assist the government in suppressing dissent. CPCs and police work with paramilitary groups associated with the Sandinista party to target the homes of protesters. In recent years, they have abducted and detained protesters and raided homes of suspected protesters across Nicaragua. End quote. So that's the Ninth Circuit's view of what's happening in Nicaragua. In April 2018, protests against the government erupted, quote, which was met with violent suppression by the FSLN, CPCs, police, and paramilitary groups, end quote. Today, the Ortega regime prosecutes protesters as terrorists. Approximately 300 protesters have been killed, quote, by police and government operatives, end quote. Mr. Molina has been an active member of an opposition political party since 2006. He was part of the protests in 2018 where he witnessed his friend and fellow demonstrator be shot in the head and killed by police with live ammunition. Mr. Molina kept protesting, kept seeing protesters killed, and began receiving death threats from government operatives and paramilitary members. Then, quote, government operatives publicly circulated posts on social media identifying Mr. Molina as an instigator of hate and violence and threatened to send him to El Chapote prison, notorious as a site for torture, end quote. This and other stuff led Mr. Molina's home to be vandalized and Mr. Molina to flee to a hideout location. Five months later, armed paramilitary members found him, demanded that he surrender, but were not able to get him because he fled out the backyard. And then a similar thing happened to him a few months later at a second hideout, but this time, a gang of Sandinista youths got him, beat him, and said they'd kill him if they saw him again. He fled to the U.S. The IJ and the BIA believed Mr. Molina, but they didn't believe that that constituted past persecution and denied asylum. The Ninth Circuit majority disagreed, applying its, quote, binding case law, end quote. Quote, First, as we have consistently recognized, being forced to flee from one's home in the face of an immediate threat of severe physical violence or death is squarely encompassed within the rubric of persecution as long as the persecutor's actions are motivated by a protected ground. End quote. That's what happened to Mr. Molina three separate times. And the severe and immediate danger that he faced arose within the broader context of mass killings and violent reprisals by the Ortega regime and its affiliates against protesters like him, which included the killing of his friend that he witnessed firsthand. Country condition evidence can establish immediate danger to individuals, even if not directed in all aspects to that non-citizen himself. In any event, the Ninth Circuit has, quote, repeatedly held that threats may be compelling evidence of past persecution, particularly when they are specific and menacing, and are accompanied by evidence of violent confrontations, near confrontations, and vandalism, end quote. Again, that's what occurred here, particularly as Mr. Molina, quote, was publicly marked as a terrorist, end quote. Finally, separate and apart from those two reasons, quote, an applicant may suffer persecution because of the cumulative effect of several incidents, even if no single incident rises to the level of persecution, end quote. So listen to that again. 
the usual requirement that IJs must consider all harm cumulatively for convention against torture purposes, as the CAT regs require. Well, in the Ninth Circuit, it appears that it also applies to asylum and past persecution. This is an important case. The repeated and escalating threats, combined with, quote, public blacklisting, end quote, the vandalism of his home forcing him to flee, the armed paramilitary incidents, and the, quote, gang of Sandinista youths beating and threatening to kill him near his second hideaway location, end quote, meet the definition of persecution in totality at a minimum. This decision is a case study on bringing past persecution asylum claims in the Ninth Circuit, and on page 22, the Ninth Circuit distinguishes the oft-relied-upon ICE Ninth Circuit cases Wackery v. Holder and Hoxa v. Ashcroft. If you're curious. Case remanded to determine whether this persecution-level harm was on account of a protected ground, although, quote, the record evidence strongly suggests that Mr. Molina was persecuted on account of his political opinion by individuals affiliated with Nicaragua's ruling Ortega regime, end quote. And actually, that's not all. The case was remanded on Convention Against Torture, too, as the BIA failed to consider the, quote, highly probative country conditions reports which reflect the Nicaraguan government's continued jailing and mistreatment of political protesters like Mr. Molina, including immediate arrest of activists at the airport as soon as they returned to the country, end quote. What an important fact to remember about Nicaragua. Congratulations, Mary Christine, Sangela, and many others, including Loyola Law School students, on the win. And I'm not done. Although the past persecution here alone required remand, as it would then result in a presumptively well-founded fear of future persecution, the Ninth Circuit also noted that the BIA erred here in finding no well-founded fear, absent the presumption, stating, for example, that even though the Ortega regime has released political prisoners, the BIA ignored lots of other stuff, showing that not much has changed despite the release of some prisoners. This is a necessary decision to review for Nicaraguan asylum claims. Because again, even if not directly applicable to Mr. Molina's specific situation, quote, all this record evidence contextualizes the Nicaraguan government's actions and Mr. Molina's specific fears of persecution upon removal, end quote. Also of note, apparently the BIA believed that Mr. Molina was not really at risk because, quote, the number of detained activists in Nicaragua is relatively small when considering that upwards of a million people participated in the aforementioned protests, end quote. But to the Ninth Circuit, that analysis is, quote, meaningless for the purpose of assessing whether Mr. Molina's fear of future persecution is well-founded in light of the evidence that Mr. Molina himself has been targeted, end quote. Remember that. Finally, I did not have occasion to review Judge Van Dyke's dissent, but do note that in a footnote, Judge Paez string cites all the times, apparently similar to here, where Judge Van Dyke has, quote, sharply criticized our court's immigration jurisprudence, end quote, during his time on the bench. And that is Molina v. Garland. Almost done, but not quite. Next is Greenwood v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on June 16, 2022. This case is about credibility and motions to reopen. Mr. Greenwood is from Jamaica and tried to enter the U.S. in 1997 with a Canadian passport that had the name Errol Brown. 
It looks like he was caught and expeditiously removed, and then when he re-entered unlawfully later, DHS reinstated that final removal order. Although the prior removal order DHS was reinstating was against Errol Brown, not Mr. Greenwood. I guess that didn't really matter for reinstatement, because Mr. Greenwood was replaced in withholding-only proceedings due to his claimed fear of returning to Jamaica, quote, because of his membership in the People's National Party and political violence by the opposing Jamaica Labor Party, including the murder of his brother and nephew, end quote. The IJ denied based on an adverse credibility finding, but it doesn't seem like any of it related to the substance of Mr. Greenwood's claim. Instead, the IJ based the finding on a, quote, determination on Mr. Greenwood's use of multiple fake names, his fraudulent passport, and an inability to establish his true identity, end quote. The BIA affirmed, and so did the Ninth Circuit. After the Ninth Circuit affirmed, Mr. Greenwood was not removed, and a year later, he moved the BIA to reopen his case due to recent elections and an uptick in violence in Jamaica. The BIA denied that motion, and the Ninth Circuit affirmed. Then Mr. Greenwood filed a second motion to reopen, adding that his nephew was recently murdered. The BIA denied again, and here we are. The Ninth Circuit affirmed that denial of that second motion as well. True, there is no time or number limitations to filing motions to reopen when based on material and previously unavailable evidence that makes a non-citizen eligible for asylum or related relief and protection. However, According to the BIA and the Ninth Circuit, none of the evidence Mr. Greenwood submitted addressed his lack of credibility related to his identity, and quote, without the credibility to assert that he is a member of the People's National Party, it does not matter whether political violence against that party has worsened in Jamaica, end quote. Specifically, the Ninth Circuit held that the BIA, quote, may rely on a previous adverse credibility determination to deny a motion to reopen if that earlier finding still factually undermines the petitioner's new argument, end quote. So that's a bit of a qualified holding, but it's largely in line with the BIA's similar decision in matter of FSN discussed on episode 7. Both this decision and matter of FSN don't preclude a motion to reopen under such circumstances so long as the, quote, new claim is independent of the evidence that was found to not be credible, end quote. But it's going to be hard. The non-citizen either needs to overcome the adverse credibility finding or overwhelm the IJ and the BIA with evidence showing that his asylum or withholding eligibility is present, notwithstanding his not-credible testimony. Going to be hard. Case in point here, quote, the new evidence of political violence in Jamaica is not material to his claim because he lacks the credibility to connect those conditions to himself, end quote. The Ninth Circuit also dismissed Mr. Greenwood's challenge to the BIA's alternative refusal to reopen his case to Esponte, holding, as it has in the past, that it lacks jurisdiction to review such decisions because such BIA decisions are too discretionary. Mr. Greenwood therefore lost his motion to reopen. But here's a bit of a standard to use to distinguish. The Ninth Circuit does recognize its precedent holding that adverse credibility denials shouldn't be sustained where the inconsistency or issue is, quote, inconsequential and not pertinent, end quote. It just held that that wasn't the case here. Mr. Greenwood has misrepresented his identification many times and even has a conviction for fraudulently applying for a U.S. passport. Therefore, here, quote, This deception goes right to the issue in this case, his identity, including whether he really is a member of the claimed political party, end quote. But that's not always the case. 
And that is Greenwood v. Garland. We have arrived at the end. Marquez Reyes v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on June 14th, 2022. This decision is about the alien smuggling ground of inadmissibility. Judge Berzon dissented. Mr. Marquez Reyes is from Mexico and has lived in the U.S. without authorization since 1998. He was placed in removal proceedings in 2013 and applied for non-LPR cancellation removal under INA Section 248B. The thing is that in addition to that high hardship standard that we're always talking about, the non-citizen applicant must also establish that they've been in the U.S. continuously for the last 10 years and that they had good moral character during that entire time. Good moral character is statutorily defined at INA Section 101F. As is so often the case in immigration law, though, that statute doesn't list all the ways an IJ can find a non-citizen to lack good moral character, but it does list a half dozen or so that, if met, definitely mean that the non-citizen lacks good moral character. And one of those reasons that is listed is if the non-citizen is inadmissible under the alien smuggling provision at INA Section 212A6E. Under that statute, a non-citizen, quote, who at any time knowingly has encouraged, induced, assisted, abetted, or aided any other non-citizen to enter or to try to enter the United States in violation of the law, is inadmissible, end quote. The IJ found that Mr. Marquez Reyes had violated that statute and therefore lacked good moral character because, quote, at his final hearing, Mr. Marquez Reyes admitted that he had twice encouraged his son, who is not a United States citizen, to enter the country illegally once in October 2010, and again in February 2011, end quote. For reasons unexplained, quote, Mr. Marquez Reyes did not say, and the record does not otherwise reveal, just what he said or did by way of encouragement, end quote. But he did admit to expressly encouraging, and that barred him from the relief. Perhaps realizing that he was in deep, Mr. Marquez Reyes, through counsel, asked the IJ to administratively close his case for five years, or up through 2021, so that that encouragement would no longer have been within the 10 years required to establish good moral character. Unsure if that strategy would have worked anyway because of the stop time rule, I'd need to look into that a bit more, but in any event, the IJ denied administrative closure and ordered Mr. Marquez Reyes removed. The BIA affirmed. Mr. Marquez Reyes brought quite a few challenges to the Ninth Circuit, arguing first that INA Section 212A6E is itself overbroad and violates the First Amendment. Mr. Marquez Reyes wasn't arguing that his own free expression was violated, but rather that the statute could prevent free expression in other contexts. And true, quote, under the doctrine of overbreath, litigants may be permitted to challenge a statute not because their own rights of free expression are violated, but because of a judicial prediction or assumption that the statute's very existence may cause others not before the court to refrain from constitutionally protected speech or expression, end quote. But there are some important qualifiers to meet that standard, and Mr. Marquez Reyes did not meet them. Now true, the statute doesn't define what it means to, quote, encourage, end quote. And if the Webster's Dictionary definition was used well, it might cover quite a lot of conduct that would otherwise violate the First Amendment. But the Ninth Circuit majority did not want to use that definition. Turning to criminal law and Black's Law Dictionary, the Ninth Circuit believed the word encouraged to be narrower, requiring a knowing mens rea, and quote, solicitation or aiding and abetting, 
and to connote complicity in a specific criminal act, end quote. Agreeing with the Sixth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit held that the provision requires, quote, some form of affirmative assistance in the non-citizen's illegal entry, something more than merely driving to a border station and presenting valid documents to customs officials, end quote. Using this narrow definition of the word encourage, the Ninth Circuit shot down Mr. Marquez Reyes's First Amendment challenge. Because whatever the word encourage means under the statute, it definitely doesn't cover, say, quote, pro-immigration political advocacy, end quote. As might otherwise violate the First Amendment if it did cover such advocacy. The statute has, quote, many legitimate applications that do not involve speech at all, end quote which also saves it constitutionally. The Ninth Circuit majority distinguished some other arguments and some other precedent and upheld the statute's constitutionality. Finally, it also rejected Mr. Marquez Reyes's challenge to the IJ and BIA's denial of administrative closure, finding that the IJ did properly apply the BIA's seminal decision in matter of Avitesian. Accordingly, the Ninth Circuit upheld the removal order. All of that was not great for Mr. Marquez Reyes, but it might be okay for other non-citizens in the future. So while Mr. Marquez Reyes lost, the case is quite good for challenging alien smuggling allegations, as it has narrowed the word encourage to cover conduct far more than simply suggesting or even urging someone to enter the U.S., read the decision, but instead it appears that the Ninth Circuit is equating encouraging to solicitation or aiding and abetting, bringing with those terms all their criminal law definitions into the word encouraged as used in the alien smuggling inadmissibility provision. That's an important argument to make as USCIS appears keen in some recent denials and noids that I've seen to expand the scope of alien smuggling to lots of stuff use this narrow definition of encouraged that the Ninth Circuit has now made law. And use everything discussed this episode, because we are finally, finally done. And that is Marquez Reyes v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.